And as you're getting settled, if you'd turn in your copy of the scriptures to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, there towards the beginning. And if you're here for the first time or haven't been here for a while, we are studying our way through the book of Exodus. And uh, just a little information, what we try to do is preach expositorily where we will take a portion of scripture, a book, and we will work our way through that so that we get a depth of understanding, we understand the context, and we try to do all that we can to dig in and see what the scriptures say to us. So it's good to have you here if you're a guest this time, and it's great to see the brothers and sisters gathered this morning. Uh, This specific evil that we look at this morning that separated the hearts of the children of Israel from their Lord, it's often not equated with some of the more scandalous failures of men, but it proved to be relentless, almost inescapable to Israel. It was a constant snare. It resulted in regular offense toward their God, much destruction, and it even culminates in the death of thousands. In this sin, no blood is shed, no bones are broken, no adultery or theft takes place. However, Scripture cites it as often, or cites it often as the cause for God's great displeasure. It brings His chastening, His chastising judgment against man, complaining, grumbling. Murmuring. No matter how I say it, it doesn't scandalize like kidnapping or fornication or murder. It is one of those acceptable sins that as Christians we agree it's wrong, but we still tolerate. And sadly, sometimes we even learn to practice it with modifications that make it look a lot less brazen. Could that be because its destructive tentacles don't seem so poisonous? Uh, It's evil not quite so obvious to us? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the book of Numbers, chapter 14, He said, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complains against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. That's sobering of how God understands and sees our complaints. What is the impact that grumbling has on God's people? Both as He is in the process of rescuing them in the exodus as they make their way through the wilderness and as He leads and directs His children in New Hope Bible Church. Let's tune in on what Yahweh is speaking to us about this destructive and pervasive sin that is so common among His children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is, it is so amazing. One moment it speaks of these dramatic miracles. The next it instructs us specifically on how to live. Uh, and the next pages we turn and it tells us how to 
care for our children or how to love our spouse. Um, the next one, it tells us how to, to worship and bring you glory. And then, then we are convicted, Father, and we are lifted by it and encouraged. Your word, it says of itself, that is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. And it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, we ask that you would make your word to come alive to us today. That you would use it as a scalpel, as, a, as, a, as an ointment, as, as like your words, as a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces, as a light that gives vision and, and insight to, to how to live and how to walk. Please, please direct us and lead us, for you are king. And when all is said and done, all that we have accomplished for you is what will really matter. So lead us today, Lord. Convict us, change us, and bring us near. In your name we pray. Amen. The beginning of this chapter starts out with a gripe about grub. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Zin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. It's been about thirty days since this nation of redeemed slaves escaped Egypt. In victory, they are marching. Two million strong through the wilderness. Their destination, the land of Canaan. The one that was promised to their forefather Abraham generations earlier. <clears throat> but this journey to Canaan was never going to be a smooth one. There had already been a near disaster of doubt on the banks of the Red Sea. Last week we read of a very large hiccup of faith in Mara. Had Mara, the absence of fresh water, exposed Israel's own absence of faith. They did not trust Moses' leadership, nor ultimately Yahweh. Even after ten supernatural plagues and the miraculous dividing of the Red Sea, Israel's doubt and complaint was always just one hardship away. Verse 2, then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. That's a Hebrew word, loon. And it is defined as to be obstinate, dissatisfied, and ungrateful. As we look here in these passages, it appears three times in verses 2 through 8. But this root word begats another verb, telun na which appears four more times in verses 7 through 12. All told between verses 2 through 12, grumbling darkens our pages seven times. Griping is everywhere. Calvin's description of this sounds like mass mutiny. He said, not that some of the people only murmured, but that they were all gathered into mobs as in a conspiracy, or at any rate, as they were arranged by hundreds and thousands, that they murmured with one consent. Two million people, and it says all the congregation. We can say perhaps there were a few that didn't. Two million people at, at your throat? Coates explains that the Hebrew word was not designed to express the disgruntled complaint. Quite the contrary. It describes utter rebellion. Harris, Archer, and Waltke. They go deeper. They say the true nature of this murmuring is seen in the fact 
that it is an open act of rebellion against the Lord. A stubborn refusal to believe God's word and God's miraculous works. Thus, the right attitude in real difficulty is unconditional acceptance and obedience. Listen to their last sentence. God's own must never stand in judgment upon him. Now listen to what this murmuring sounded like out there on the barren plains of Zin. Verse 3, And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Do you hear their convoluted logic? The children of Israel have flipped the glory of the Exodus into an accusation of genocide leveled at Moses and Aaron. They are literally accusing him or them of dragging the children of Israel into the desert with the intent of starving them to death. Where did that rage come from? A few months ago they had witnessed Yahweh use a series of ten devastating miraculous plagues to totally dismantle Egypt and subjugate the most powerful king on earth. Only a few weeks back, these same people, two million of them, were confidently marching out of the hand of their slave drivers in Egypt. Thrilled with deliverance from bondage, they swaggered out of Egypt. Just a few days earlier, in fact, they sang praise to Yahweh on the beach of the Red Sea. While they sang, Bodies of enemy soldiers washed ashore in silent testimony of God's conquest over Pharaoh. As Phil pointed out last week from Exodus 15, when the jubilant Israelites sang of Yahweh reigning forever, that really translated into about three days. Within three days of victory, their praise, thanksgiving, and confidence gave way to grumbling and to doubt. Can you believe it? I do. I believe it quite well. This is not foreign to me or you. Complaining easily and often eclipses gratitude. Doubt who usurps trust. Trust that God's faithfulness had legitimately earned in our lives. Romans 1.21 contains one of the most serious indictments against an ungrateful heart. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. But became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And I encourage you to read Romans 1, 22 to the end. And see the tragedy that comes as a result from ungratefulness. Seriously, read that. The consequences will stun you. Where did all that doubt and murmuring, murmuring come from? It is no surprise, is it? I plead guilty of the same. Israel will display the same sinful attitude toward their faithful Savior time and again. Will they be this way forever? Will we ever grow past this infantile faith of ours? Scripture reveals something about this question. One might even get the idea that Yahweh actually has a plan and purpose in all of this. 
You mean Israel's lives and our lives are not all senseless wanderings through trials? Enduring until our carbon frames run out of energy and we are swept into eternity? Does Exodus 16, with this incessant episode of griping, have a purpose? I certainly hope so, for I see far too much of myself in this convicting drama. Those of you who have an humble and honest knowledge of yourself likely do too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we open this up and we ask, Lord, that you would reveal to us our hearts, that we would reveal to us your glory, would we reveal to us that it is you who, as you said, brought the children of Israel out of bondage and slavery, that it is you who have brought many of us out of the bondage of sin and death. Lord, please help us to, to grapple with this and to walk in newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Lord, I ask you, please speak through your word. Please speak in spite of me and over me and, and change us, Lord, into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 4, we see God's response to this complaining. God is going to reveal something to the Israelites and is going to use the method of testing. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. The Lord has faithfully protected, sustained, and delivered these people over and over and over again. Would he not have been completely just if he had responded to their incessant grumbling by raining down fire and brimstone? Instead, he promises to do what? He's going to rain something else. He's going to rain down something quite different. Yahweh says, I will, bring, I will rain bread from heaven for you. His response to their complaint was to take care of them and to test them. And there are at least four tests that are mentioned here. Briefly, the test of contentment in verses 16 through 18. The test of trust in 19 through 21. The test of compliance in 22 through 24. And the test of rest in 25 through 30. Through these tests, Yahweh says that He will know if they will walk in His laws or not. Their obedience will reveal what? The same thing ours does. Their obedience will reveal who they love. Jesus echoed this statement many years later. In John 14, 21, he said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. That verse is packed right here in chapter 16 of Exodus. Yahweh has designed these tests in the wilderness to reveal his place in his people's hearts. Likewise, obedience revealed the hearts of Christ's followers in the Gospels. And our obedience to Christ's commands today still are the evidence of love for Him. Raised hands, loud praise, weeping, smiling, Jesus t-shirts, Bible conferences, and others, other expressions 
may all be sincere, but they are not a measure of your love for Christ. I don't say that to discourage raised hands or loud praise or weeping or smiling or conferences or even t-shirts. Just don't confuse them with what Yahweh both in the Old Testament and New Testament says is the test of love toward Him. Will we walk in His ways? In verse 6 and 7, Moses and Aaron declare to Israel that Yahweh's plan will do something else. It will also reveal to them who He is. Verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now here, what has Yahweh done? He has made a point of clarification. It is not the accused Moses and Aaron who brought you out of Israel or out of Egypt. It is me, Yahweh. I brought you out. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. In the morning, I, w I would love to have been there. In the morning, the Lord will display His honor. That His glory, His majesty, His splendor. That word means the weightiness of who He is. The incom incalculable significance of the Creator God will be manifested in some way before their very eyes. And their godless grumbling is exposed in verse 7. For He hears your complaints. Now we love the fact that God hears us. And we know that sin separates us. Isaiah 59 tells us that because of our iniquities, our sins, His face is turned away so that He will not hear. But when you are afflicted in cry, Psalm 22 says, He hears us. When we plead to Him, He hears us. But aren't there sometimes when you wish that He didn't? For he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we, said, Abraham, or said Moses and Aaron, that you complain against us? You see, when Israel complained in the wilderness, their complaint, though aimed at Moses and Aaron, actually struck the Lord. Also Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints that you make against Him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord, against Yahweh. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for He has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold the glory of the Lord appeared in that cloud. You look at that verse. How many times does God emphasize I hear your complaints. You complained. I heard this complaint. And over the top of that he gives his grace. This is amazing who God is. His love for his people. Even as they griped Yahweh drew his people to himself. As Aaron spoke, Yahweh appeared in glory in that cloud. What that looked like, we do not know. But in some way, Yahweh gripped his people with the manifestation of his presence. For it says, they looked and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in that cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses in verse 11 saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them saying, at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Thank 
Thank you, Dave, for that song. God will give them a heart to know him. God will work. He will work even though we deserve nothing of that sort. Verse 13, the gracious gift of God arrives. So it was that quail, quails, some of you say quail, some say quail. In Kansas we say quail for plural. But. So it was that quail came up at evening and covered the camp. And in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. Quail would be given to Israel on one other occasion. It appears in Numbers 11. It was miraculous in its timing. Coming right when God said it was. And it was amazingly miraculous in its quantity. Its sufficiency. Two million people out there. And there was enough quail that came streaming in to where they could get those. And, and when we get into numbers, we'll uh, see a little bit more how that happened. But we move on to verse 14, and we get to the, the real subject of the matter of God's provision here. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance, as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Now, manna, I don't think that would strike any of you as being a real creative name, would it? What is it? What is it? And now, when you start talking, that almost sounds like a, a comedy dialogue. What is it? What is it? But Numbers 11, 7 through 9, gives us a little more description. Now the manna was like coriander seed. And I brought a little bit of that. You won't be able to see it very well, but it'll show you the, the size of it. And it's about the size of a small BB, a little bit smaller. Um, Ramia was telling me that this is, is used vastly through the Middle East as part of their seasoning. I don't know how much people use it here. But that shows you about the size of what that manna was like. About the size of a coriander seed. And its color was like the color of bdellium. The best description I found of bdellium was it gives almost like this uh, precious gem appearance with sort of a pearlish white. It must have been beautiful. And it was very small. It goes on to say in Numbers 11, the people went about and gathered it, ground it on millstones or beat it in the mortar, cooked it in pans and made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. We're looking at grace here. Grace is often defined as receiving what we do not deserve. What Israel deserved was rebuke and chastening. What Yahweh gave them was bread for life. This was a clear demonstration of grace. But it is also a shadow of a far greater grace that would come. That grace was demonstrated in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the bread of life, would be given. The bread from heaven. Though we were far more undeserving than Israel has ever been. Yet God would pour out His grace in sending His Son. Christ compares Himself with this bread. Turn with me to John chapter 6. And when Jesus speaks to an episode that we're studying from Exodus, I think it's really important that we hear what He had to say. John chapter 6, verse 41. 
The Jews then complained about him because he had said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And it is written in the prophets, And they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Again, this is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. That is Jesus' application of the type and shadow that we see there in Exodus chapter 16. Now, Moses brings us to these gathering tests. The first one is a test of contentment. This is the one which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person, according to the number of persons. Let each man take for those who are in his tent. Now gathering, gathering goes with the gift. Now Yahweh could have delivered manna on plates to their doorsteps. It could have already been baked, boiled, and barbecued by God. But it wasn't. Re responsibility to labor by gathering, or it can be translated as gleaning, was important. An omer amount, and that's an omer is about this size. It's a little more than a half gallon. This was how much was allotted to each person that was there in the wilderness. So it's, it's quite a bit. And if you had a large family, I don't know how long it would have taken to gather it, but if you wonder what an omer is, it's about that size, a little more than a half gallon. They were required to gather this in order to receive the gracious gift of God. Gathering does what? Well, it reduces laziness. It demands the responsibility of the man. Now I want you to understand the word man in this verse specifically means the male gender, not humankind. So the man of the family was responsible to make this happen. Then we see in obedience, verse 17, Then the children of Israel did so. And they gathered, some more and some less. 
So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. They were content with what God had instructed them with. This first test went well. The report card indicates that the people were content to gather only what was specifically needed for each man and his family. The second test, daily trust. These are all so applicable to us. Daily trust. Verse 19, And Moses said, Let no one leave any of it till morning. That was the instruction. Notwithstanding, they did not listen to Moses. But some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. One translation reads, It became rotten with maggots and stunk. No matter how you imagine this stinking bowl of squirming magnet, maggots, it's revolting. It is as if the disobedience accelerated the natural spoiling process that most of us have seen and smelled at the bottom of a rotten pile of garbage. The sight and smell overwhelm your senses and you just want to throw up. What motivated some of them to do this? It seems to me that it must have been a lack of trust. After all, verse 18 tells us there was nothing left over and no one lacked. So it didn't seem that there was a greed. Some doubted or ignored Yahweh's promise to provide each day. As a backup plan, they put up a little extra manna for a rainy day. Turned out to be a disgusting day. And Moses was angry with them. When the people ignored Moses... By his headship of this group, they ignored Yahweh. Yahweh was his spokesman to these people. When they ignored Moses, they ignored Yahweh. And we don't know if Moses was angry because the people disrespected him and therefore disrespected Yahweh. But I think perhaps it was also because Moses recognized the seriousness of this offense. He may have been angry because of the jeopardy their disobedience put them in. Yahweh could have again justifiably destroyed them in that moment. But he did not. Moses knows the Lord, however, will not tolerate disobedience forever. Perhaps that was some of his anger. Evidently, the revolting maggots and the stench of the rot was enough to cure this foolishness. For it's recorded in verse 21. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. Every day Yahweh provided the manna. And every day, he removed it. Third test, the test of compliance. Now the word compliance is defined as the state of being in accordance with established guidelines or specifications. Now, I'm being a little risky here with so many men and women here who work with specifications constantly day after day. I'm probably at risk of misusing the term. But I think it works here. You can correct me afterwards. Let's look at the specifications Yahweh gives to the gathering of manna. Verse 22, And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said, Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until the morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded. And it did not stink, 
nor were there any worms in it. See the specifications he gave. When do we do that? How much do we do? What do we do with it after we've collected it? How will it turn out? Yahweh specifies an exception in the daily routine of gathering manna. On the sixth day of the week, gather twice as much for each person. Prepare what you've gathered and save up the remainder to be used the next morning on the seventh day. Now, I thought as I read it, did those who hoarded in disobedience on an early day have flashbacks of the worms and stench? We don't know. We don't know whether they doubted or this struck them unusually, but this was certainly a change-up for everyone. Think about this. For five days, the routine has gone well, and the kinks of disobedience and doubt seem to have been smoothed out. This manna each morning really is a great system. But now a little shake-up. Because it is not the system we trust. It is the creator that we trust. And if he says on the sixth day we gather twice as much and we don't gather anything on the seventh day, we do it because not because the system is going to work, but because the creator has told us. Now they must continue to love him in obedience, whatever and however he commands. And it appears that they have done that this time. At least a number of them. And then we have the final test, the test to rest. The instructions are given in verse 25. Then Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. The word Sabbath means to cease or desist. Moses is commanding the people to cease from gathering manna on the seventh day. By obeying, they would express their faith and love toward Yahweh. They don't know how this is going to work. Everything has gone a different way before. But if they will do what he commands and rest on that day, he will fulfill his promises. At this point in time, the Lord's command to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy had not been written. It had not shown up in the, tenth in the Ten Commandments. That will come soon as we get to Mount Sinai in this journey. Yet we see there is already a sense that the concept of a Sabbath, that with a six-day work week and a seventh day of rest, was in some way familiar to Israel. Perhaps, and I think quite assuredly, that is because the principle of a seventh day rest didn't first pop up here in Exodus. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, we read, And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Some historians state that the day of rest was completely unknown in the Egyptian culture. The slaves of the Egyptians, these children of Israel, would never have known a regular day of rest from their labor for the last several centuries. That would not have happened. But now they are no longer serving Pharaoh. They are serving their master Yahweh. He provides them a seventh day rest from labor. Now that's a radical change in the lives of these newly rescued slaves. Yahweh was not only giving them manna in the wilderness, but he was also giving them a day of rest. And we go further. Not only was he providing them a day of rest, but he was also providing a necessary means to enjoy this day which he had commanded them to rest on because he would provide them doubly the day before. He was making it possible by his grace for them to actually fulfill the command that he gave. 
That is what God does for us now. Here's what it's going to look like. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. So what happens? Again, that infamous sum of the people rebelled. And look. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather. But they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? As representative, head of the people, Moses receives Yahweh's rebuke. Now we see another reason why Moses may have been angry when the people disobeyed. Because he would get it. God would put it upon him. Consequently, Moses makes it absolutely clear to the people what must now be done. Verse 29, See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. I can almost hear him say, Can I make it any clearer? Verse 30. So the people rested on the seventh day. Hallelujah. They listened and obeyed. And our last portion this morning goes with the meal to remember. Verse 31. And the house of Israel called its name manna. And it was like white coriander seed. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said there, And take a pot and put an omer of manna in it, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. Isn't this amazing stuff? Six days of the week, if it were left overnight, it would turn into stinking maggots. On the sixth day, its shelf life doubled. And however, this one specific half-gallon jar of manna was going to last for hundreds of years. It would never spoil, but it would continue to exist as a reminder of the grace of Yahweh in the wilderness. Verse 34, As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Let me just read when that happens from Joshua chapter 5. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. What has happened is they have just crossed miraculously over the Jordan and come in to take possession of the land of Canaan. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover. Unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. One of the commentators wrote, Our complaints really are never caused by our outward circumstances. Instead, they reveal the inward condition of our hearts. He also wrote, God always takes our complaints personally. 
He knows that when we grumble about our personal circumstances, our spiritual leaders, or anything else, what we are really doing is finding fault with Him. We are complaining about what He has provided or has not provided. A complaining spirit always indicates a problem in our relationship with God. Deuteronomy chapter 8 reviews the master's purpose behind the master's plan for Israel. Why did he bring so many trials upon them? And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that a man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. You should know in your heart that as a man chases his son, chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. The trials came upon Israel for the same reasons that they come upon us. That is what the Lord wanted for them. That they would learn to walk in his ways and to fear him. To keep his commandments. To know the glory of God. It's a very important position. Do you want that? Do you want that in your life? Do you want to learn to walk obedient with him? Do you want to see his glory? Do you want to know him deeply and love him? And, and, and somebody might be thinking, hey, this is a church. Everybody here wants that. No, we don't. We don't and our lives show it. And maybe sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. But the commandment of the Lord is that we would walk in his ways. And Jesus says, I will know those who love me if they keep my commandments. In Romans 8, Paul writes about our being so weak that we don't even know how to pray. And then he says, but the Holy Spirit does. And the Spirit speaks to the Father on our behalf. And then immediately after he paints this picture of our weakness and inability, Paul writes this. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. In such times of difficulty, in such times of hard life experiences, what happens? We have doubt. We have doubt of God's love and His involvement in my life. We have fear. We have fear of this crazy unknown as, as the avalanche seems to build in our nation, in our world. We are emotionally exhausted sometimes from the demands upon us at work or in the home or from relationships. We're discontent. We're discontent with their job. Sometimes we're discontent with our marriage, with our family, with our church, with our life. And accusations. We've made them. 
We have made them towards leaders, towards friends, towards spouses, towards parents, towards children. Accusations. In such times, our Father is masterfully at work. Hear this. During those times, God is masterfully at work using the very circumstances that are so painful to set us apart and reveal himself to us and to create within us the image of Jesus Christ. Within our loathsome frames, God is fashioning the image of his son. Is that not a miracle? Is that not a miracle that surpasses the splitting of the Red Sea? It is not also, is it not also utterly undeserved? A demonstration of grace. But if you are in Christ, it is true. And it is Jesus' statement of fact. So, at the end of a chapter, digging up complaints and murmuring and grumbling, what do we do with it? If griping is wrong and is an offense against our Lord, if complaining actually reveals my heart is not right with Christ, if grumbling demonstrates that I am unwilling to trust Christ in all things and nor rejoice in the Lord always, what do I do? How do we deal with this? We begin by confessing to our Lord. We confess that we are in sin and have been discontent and ungrateful. We have doubted His sovereignty over all things. We have distrusted his willingness, even his desire and ability to keep his promises to us. And whatever else the Spirit of God convicts you of. Secondly, we repent. We repent from the very things we have confessed. We consciously do an about face. We express contentment now to God. We express gratitude toward our Lord. We trust his sovereignty and his intent and his ability to keep his promises to us. Now some of us, I know, we would like more mechanics. How do we do this? I even had a conversation on my way over to church this morning with a brother. That's going to be different for each of us. Where you're at, how do we put this into place? But the Bible says we do it. We repent and we follow then we pray. We pray for His Spirit to enable us to trust and obey. Enable us to repent. Enable us to confess. For the very things we are commanded to do, we will only be able to do by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can only do it through Him. So get on your knees. Plead to Him. And He will give you all that you need. And then I would add another step to the first three. Immerse yourself in God's word. Allow yourself, excuse me, allow him, allow God to reveal to you and to remind you who he is through his living and powerful word. If you want to hear from God, open this up. If you want to hear audibly from God, open this up and read out loud. But spend time in this word so he can change our lives. Confess, repent, pray, and submerge yourself in God's word. Then lastly, you rejoice. You rejoice in the heavenly Father who is full of grace. For as Romans 5 says, 
For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have such a great father. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy of pursuing till he takes us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit that you have given to dwell within us and to illumine your word. And Lord, we ask that you would do that, that you would speak to us and lead us and direct us. Father, take us in our weakness, in our failures. May we continually put our eyes upon Jesus Christ, the author and finisher, completer of our faith. Lord, thank you for your word. Please bless the men and women, young and old here. Father, to be your ambassadors, to speak to this dying world. Many people that, that our people will come across are lost and will spend eternity in hell unless they know you. And Lord, within this assembly gathered this morning, we pray for those who are, who are stubbornly resisting you, unwilling to follow, that they would trust in this mighty Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, the sustainer of all mankind, of the universe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.